Okay, thank you very much. Um, I'm deeply honoured to be a keynote speaker um, in an audience where several people could equally or be better keynote speakers than myself. So um, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm deeply honoured to, to have this first position. I'm going to focus on obesity and fatness from a developmental perspective. So I'm going to wear my biologist hat to a large extent today and think about um, fatness versus obesity. So um, obesity is a medical classification of excess body fatness. Um, excess in relation to disease predisposition. That's the first thing. Fatness, on the other hand, is important for all mammalian species for a range of different purposes. So I'm going to flip between obesity and fatness. So when I'm talking about fatness, it's really thinking about fatness from the, from the biological perspective. And I'm going to take a, a developmental perspective uh, uh, on this. So the developmental perspective is that um, the evolutionary basis of obesity involves both genetics and development. But it may be a simple point, but it's not very often made. Obesity develops from the earliest interuterine life to adult life. It's something that develops, an accretion of fat. And then secondly, nothing um, can develop without behavior. That's going to be my, my, my argument. So it's going to be very much a, a behavioral one. So just a few very simple points to be made before we, 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 we hoe in. Um, can the lights down? Sorry? Can we turn the lights down? Uh, of course. A uh, very simple point that nothing, <coughs> that obesity develops. That, uh, here's an example from the United States, very simply, children aged 2 to 5, 6 to 11, 12 to 19, 20 to 74 years as adults. Um, and we see from 1960, in all of these categories, with something of a flip point in the 1980s, uh, obesity rates increase. At the individual level, it means that it's something, uh, accretion of body fat is, is something that, that develops. It's relationships to, to, to behavior, nothing develops without behavior. And here's a cartoon I took from uh, 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 some public health literature, uh, very simply, um, that here's a healthy child um, who is watching television, playing video games, eating high-fat foods. Um, those are behaviors. <coughs> simply, those are behaviors. These are things that you do. Um, secondly, studying or study, no action, behavior. Then we move into, into the traffic light zone of mildly obese, mild obesity. Then you get uh, people saying, I'm no good at sport. Um, I'm too, uh, uh, um, not very happy to climb stairs. These are behaviors. And then other kids make fun of me. Exercise is uncomfortable and painful. These are all behaviors. Initially, individual behaviours, but all of these are, you know, are, are, are socially oriented behaviours. So, I hope, on the basis of two very simple cartoons, we can agree that obesity is fundamentally behavioural and developmental. If you disagree, I'm quite happy to to take that. That's the position I'm going to take to take today. So, the structure of the talk today, I'm going to start off with Aristotle's four causes and Tinbergen's four questions. Does anybody know who Nico Tinbergen was? Okay, two, three, four, five, hands are rising. Okay, fantastic. Okay, it's very clearly not the Tinbergen building. The Tinbergen building was named 
after Nico Tinbergen. So what did Nico Tinbergen do? I mean, he was a pioneer in the study of animal behavior. And he was, got a Nobel Prize in 1973, along with Conrad, Conrad Lawrence and Carl von Frisch, for discovering the organization of the situation of individual and social behavior patterns. Okay. How does this tie to what we're saying? Well, actually, he structured biology in a way that can give us very clear ways of thinking about the different aspects of body fatness and obesity, for example. So that's what I'm going to focus on. Um, nothing comes from nowhere. So a great paper written in 2013 was Tinbergen and Aristotelian, comparison of Tinbergen's four whys and Aristotle's four questions. Uh, Aristotle's four, four questions, four causes rather, were frame things into four ways of understanding the material change in the world. A complete explanation of something, biology, in this case we're talking about biology, a complete explanation of any phenomenon in the world should use all four, material, formal, efficient, and final causes. Uh, material causes, what is something made of? So in the case of uh, body fatness, humans are made of cells, some cells are adipocytes, about the general properties of something, uh, the human body needs oxygen because the cells need oxygen. The formal cause, what makes a thing one thing rather than many things. We focus on the body as the one thing. But when we're talking about obesity rates, we're talking about social bodies and political bodies that form populations. And we're focusing on those things as a body. So what makes a body one thing rather than many things? Important question in relation to obesity, because when you report obesity at the nation state level, you're assuming that the nation state is the natural unit of organization for a group of people. But it may not be. Often it is not. As we can see with the Brexit issue at the present time, this country is being torn apart into separate countries at the moment and many different ways of thinking. So. I'm pleased to be the first person to mention Brexit today. Um, I'm, I'm sure others will, will, will follow. Um, uh, so what makes a thing one thing rather than many things? Efficient causes. What does the work? Every change is caused by an efficient cause. If a body gains weight, it's because energy enters the body at a rate faster than it dissipates it. We deal with a lot of these questions, and yet we think we're sit sitting in separate domains. But when we organize them according to Tinberg and according to Aristotle, we can very see easily see where our area of study lies in relation to other areas of study. Then the final cause, why efficient causes do what they do and why formal causes do what they do, onto sort of operationalizing everything in a grand way. So Tinbergen's four questions. Um, he wrote a paper um, in 1963, uh, which was dedicated to Conrad Lawrence on his 60th birthday. Um, and noting that biologists work on behavior focus on different types of problems. So nothing comes from nowhere. Tinbergen takes from Aristotle in identifying four fundamentally different types of problem raised in the study of biology. Survival value, ontogeny, evolution, and causation. So what are the types of questions we ask? What is it for? Okay. Sometimes you struggle with answering that question because have you ever heard somebody ask, what is a baby for? Okay, it's not a question we ask very often, but we can actually answer that in an evolutionary sense if we want to. How did it develop across the lifetime of an individual? We are all individuals with behaviors 
that have developed across the lifetime, that we have different pathways to becoming who we are right now. Different pathways. In deeper time, how did it evolve across the history of species? Here we are, homo sapiens, big brains, um, which usually work in our favor, but sometimes they don't. And so we can, we can seek evolutionary explanations for why we behave in relation to uh, eating, for example, why we may choose to eat certain kinds of foods and other kinds of foods. Partly evolutionary, our taste for sweetness is innate and evolutionary, but it's something that is also trained across the course of a lifetime and is therefore also developmental across the course of a lifetime. Helps us to, to frame things. Then finally, how does it work? Okay, This is in the striving for identifying medical solutions to obesity. How does it work is a major question because how it works then helps us to be able to calibrate that mechanism in some kind of way. Um, okay, so he was concerned with behavior, but these four questions apply broadly to any characteristic in living systems. So very simply, and I'm going to focus on this framework as I, as I, as I go across time, <laughs> that there are both levels of questions, ultimate questions, adaptation and phylogeny, evolution and the adaptive um, uh, function of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of an evolutionary trait um, is an ultimate question. Approximate question is ontogeny. How does something develop? Developmental explanations for sequential change across the lifespan of an individual. When we talk about epigenetics and developmental origins of disease, for example, we're invoking ontogeny in thinking about um, how obesity emerges, for example. With mechanism, uh, also approximate uh, level at the object of study, um, causal explanations in terms of what the behavior is, how the behavior is constructed, and they can include all kinds of things, including morphology, molecular mechanisms, underlying biological factors, external stimuli, environment, and so on. So, Fatness and Timbergen's four questions. How do we, how do we move from here? Taking the Timbergen form, <coughs> I'm going to look at mostly proximate questions, the current form and the explanation of the current form, mechanisms and ontogeny. But I have to spend a few minutes at least saying why genetics might be important and why adaptation might be important. So ultimate questions, phylogeny, ultimate explanations. How do we become a species that is particularly fat, that contains, that has particularly high levels of body fat relative to most other mammalian species, not every, every species? And then the adaptive value of, of that body fatness. Okay, so in terms of the ultimate questions, the current form, the adaptive value, and the explanation of the current form are evolutionary explanations. So very simply, adaptive value of body fatness. This is, for me, obesity 101. I give this every single year in lectures, and anybody, there are people nodding their heads, they've seen this before, um, and I think it's still important and useful. Insulation. Babies, humans need body fat for insulation. We don't have fat fur, we have body fatness. Some species have fur, we don't have it. Um, we have in, in, instead an overcoat, or an undercoat, if you will, of body fatness that uses insulation. Thermogenesis, brown and beige fat, that we can activate brown adipose tissue in times of cold stress, for example, that can generate uh, heat when we need to be able to maintain uh, uh, maintain uh, 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 physiological homeostasis. 
immunology and endocrinology, adipose tissue is not just a store of fat. It also has immunological purpose. It also has endocrinological purpose. It's an energy reserve. We know this, that uh, before uh, the last 60 or 70 years, um, humans used energy reserves in times of leanness when there wasn't enough food available, and so you could mobilize body fat to be able to, to, to maintain energy expenditure. And then, you know, the adaptive value ultimately is, is, is one of reproduction. Women fatten more easily than males, but also women carry almost all of the reproductive load for, uh, for, for, the, for the human species. Evolutionary explanations. Here are three. There are more. Um, the first and classic one is the thrifty genotype hypothesis that we've adapted to store body fatness because we can... Um, <coughs> have been through population bottlenecks when we've gone through periods of feast and famine. Um, this has been examined extensively and much more recently. The issue with the thrifty genotype hypothesis is very difficult to demonstrate. Um, secondly, the drifty genotype hypothesis, John Speakman in particular, has talked about drifty genotype, that we didn't actually have selection for body fatness, we kind of drifted into it um, for, uh, because of random genetic drift. Um, and uh, because of predation re release, that at some stage uh, we were part of a food chain uh, and were more likely to be predated as we became more successful as a species in uh, predating other species, that predation release also led to um, uh, uh, reduced energy expenditure and a re reduced uh, need to, uh, uh, to, to, to be able to have an efficient metabolism. And finally, the genetics of obesity seems to be overwhelmingly, but not totally, related to appetite regulation. Genome-wide association studies carried out here in Oxford and across the world have shown that uh, much of what's happening uh, with respect to the genetics of obesity is in relation to appetite regulation. So uh, for me, that's the thing that, that pushes this towards, towards behaviors and towards eating. OK, the proximate questions. Um, the um, um, Fatness and the four questions are uh, mechanism, morphology, molecular mechanisms, environmental cues, and things that influence how we eat, how we become uh, put on body fatness in relation to these sets of things. We're still very much in Tinbergen land, very much in Aristotle land. Okay? Secondly, ontogeny and developmental explanations. I'm not going to talk about this, but there's a lot that could be said. I could take a divergent road now and start talking about developmental origins of adult disease. I could talk about epigenetics and say ontogeny, the developmental explanations, explanations of current form, form uh, another uh, set of, of proximate explanations of increasing body fatness and obesity. So for mechanism, um, a current form, um, appetite and palatability. We have appetites, we want to eat, um, we need to eat, and we find food of different kinds, more or less palatable. Some of that is trained, some of that is innate. All of us have an innate preference for eating sweet foods. Um, that is then modeled or trained according to our upbringing. If our parents say, eat broccoli, and they give us broccoli, we eat broccoli all the time, we can become desensitized to, to, to sweetness and prefer broccoli to sweet things as time goes on. Um, but there, the gut-brain axis is operating to, as a mechanism for, for controlling, uh, controlling appetite. And of course, 
the piece that's hidden here, and I'm not going to talk about it, is, is the microbiome and how the microbiome is influenced by what we eat and how that microbiome then influences what is fed back to the brain in terms of appetite. I'm not going to talk about that, but it is a mechanism that can be, that can be developed. Um, then we have cues from high-energy-dense foods with a metabolic hierarchy, things that have high energy density, we have a preference for. So sugar, fat, again, um, with uh, uh, an evolutionary underpinning. And then finally, uh, obesogenic environments, we don't think about them as being mechanisms, but actually we do have to intersect with things that influence our behavior architecture when we make choices in everyday life. We have to make decisions in the context of what we have. If you take away the fast food, if you take away all the sweets and lollies that are available in the shops as you go past, you can take away many of those cues and then you probably wouldn't want to eat many of these foods. But these cues are in the environment all around us. There are people who are influenced by the McDonald's sign that immediately is state, creating a state of mind for wanting to eat a McDonald's, even before they've come close to even smelling a McDonald's, for example. But the branding is so efficient in predetermining how people might want to eat. By just having that sign on the landscape creates an image in your mind about what you might want. You come close to it, you've already modeled it in your mind. You know what it tastes like. By the time it gets to your mouth, you've already eaten it mentally before you've eaten it physically, for example. Okay, so I'm gonna focus that lays out uh, obesity thinking, and now I'm going to start to dig a little bit deeper, um, uh, first of all with, with ontogeny. So obesity as a proximate develop, uh, developmental outcome of behavior and eating. Um, most, the most important behavior in relation to obesity. It's complex, uh, but we all do it without thinking about it from birth to death. It's a fundamentally evolved biological trait uh, we can do it in many different ways, but um, we can do it more easily than we can ride a bicycle, for example, as another one of these automatic behaviours that uh, one learns and then doesn't have to think about. What makes it complex? Well, it has many components. That's the first thing. Each of these components has a complexity element to it. I'm not talking about complexity today, but simply rushing past it on the freeway of, uh, of Tim Bergen's four causes. Um, environmental causes. Um, our selection of food, um, brain, mouth, and taste, I'm going to focus on a little bit more. Gut and, microbi uh, and microbiota, digestion and nutrition, the brain and satiety, all of these are forms of complexity um, that are, um, can fit together in a more complex way as a form of more romantic uh, uh, complexity, which, is, which has an overview. So just simply focusing on this, we have a lot of different disciplines that deal and work on these different aspects, but they come together as a form of complexity. So to focus on ontogeny and mechanisms, fatness and eating. First of all, on ontogeny and development. <coughs> Innate human taste preferences vary. It can vary quite enormously. This is a baseline um, measure at rest of babies not eating anything. A boy seven hours, old, uh, seven hours old, a boy eight hours old, a girl five hours old, a boy seven hours old. So four different children. 
their response to just taking in water. No calories, no taste, or a neutral taste in any rate. With sweetness, you can see a whole range of different ways of responding to a sweet taste. With bitterness, we can see a range of responses to taste for bitterness. Um, okay, on to uh, vegetables, different taste responses to vegetables, some puckering their mouth, some showing, showing some, some, some pleasure. And then different levels of umami, monosodium glutamate, the protein taste, and variation in how children respond to, to the signal of protein. So at that age, um, the diet has not been modelled to any particular extent, and we can see already great variation in, uh, in, in human taste preferences. Um, secondly, children live in a different sensory world to adults, and this changes across time. So the <coughs> younger children prefer sweeter tasting foods than do adolescents. And adolescents prefer sweeter tasting foods than adults. This one little ex experiment from Graf and Sandra, 1999, illustrates this um, quite well. It shows perceived intensity on a scale of, of, of one to five. You know, no huge science involved in this. I don't say, how intense do you think this is on a scale of one to five? Um, and uh, taking children who are eight to 10 years old, adolescents, 14 to 16 years, and adults who are 20 to 25 years old. I would see with, with low sucrose, uh, um, sucrose concentrations, there's not very much difference in terms of, in terms of perceived intensity. Um, but when you get to higher levels of sucrose intensity, an adult can perceive this 30% weight by volume sucrose concentration, which just thinking about it makes me sick. Um, uh, I would put my scale up at five on that. The average for adults was about 4.8. Um, for, for the younger children, it's about 4.2. So we can see that children already and adolescents perceive sweeter things as being less sweet or less intense than adults do. So it's no surprise that the market for sweet foods is easily, easily targeted at younger children because they live in a, in a different sensorial world to adults. There's no point saying, I taste this like this, therefore you should taste this like this. Actually, they taste things differently, or slightly differently. And secondly, in terms of, in terms of here's another chart that shows sucrose concentration, again, and the measured ples pleasantness. Um, and these are adults, and we see the pleasantness declines very dramatically uh, once the sucrose concentration increases to 15% weight by volume. No, these are the youngest children, eight to 10 years old, no change in perception of pleasantness from the lowest to the highest concentration. Yeah? Point made? I think so. Um, taste preferences in relation to, to, to preferences for sweetness and bitterness. You can say, ah, well, there are other things that modulate taste. We don't just eat sweet things. Of course not. <coughs> I think I've already mentioned children's liking of sweet and dislike. Uh, of sweetness reflecting their, bit, uh, their basic biology. The dislike, dislike of bitterness also reflects their basic biology. Um, preferences for sweetness change during adolescence, as does sensitivity to bitterness. Interesting thing in relation to foods, as opposed to these primary tastes, <coughs> is that when you put salt and bitter together, 
um, it modulates it for adults. So adults are more likely to modulate the bitter taste of a food with something like salt, for example, because it makes it brings down the bitterness. But for a child, sugar modulates bitter tastes more effectively. So mixing sugar and bitter reduces the bitter taste more effectively for children than it does for adults. So very clearly, again, in relation to mixtures of primary tastes, children and adults are living in different sensorial worlds, um, mostly evolution. So you can see the struggle that exists for parents in trying to um, model children's eating behavior towards an adult sensorial world. It's, you know, there is a fundamental biological, biological issue that underpins it. Um, feeding behaviours in infancy and childhood. Okay, so it's a... How do you develop feeding behaviours? It's a developmental skill that matures over time. We've got these primary tastes which are then modelled by parents, um, more or less by different parents. Um, it's reliant on hunger and satiety cues and experiential learning. So you learn to eat and you learn what to eat. The ability to eat is mostly in place by the age of two years. So you see the modelling that has to happen has to be very early. Um, has to happen very early and certainly by five years of age because the hunger satiety cues shift primarily from internal to external control by five years of age. So child is being modelled, but the earlier you can model the behaviour, eating behaviour of child, the better. And also the relative importance of family, school and society across childhood life is important. If you give up parental control of feeding to the school, it's then reliant on the school. That could be an improvement or it could be, could be worse, but you give the control of modelling child behaviour to the school. By the time you get children to secondary school, to high school, um, the parental control of this is, is very little, and children are much more left to their own devices, so the modelling stays as a very much, uh, very much internal one. Um, problematic feeding behaviours, reactions to internal cues, absence of hunger, <coughs> poor sucking uh, ability, then is increasingly conditioned by association with external societal cues. So, moving away from thinking about food as something that you focus on. So parents and modeling children's behavior, television commercials, anything that would distract a child can change uh, and modulate feeding behaviors. In a world of social media, now we have this as an additional load, an additional burden for thinking about how feeding behaviors are mod modulated beyond family, school, and, and other societal factors. Okay, moving now to um, mechanisms for fatness and feeding. The brain is the, the most important organ of taste and satiety. It is, in uh, Kevin Leyland's terms, um, a biocultural organ. The taste is biocultural. The biology which can be shaped by social learning. So, the relationship between phylogeny, development, is very much looping. It's not an independent thing. That our taste for foods, the evolution of taste, is something that is culturally mediated, um, bringing together genetics and the human sciences in thinking about how we how we how we think about food. In morphology and physiology, this is a very old chart, but I still love it. 
uh, because it's two looping mechanisms. Okay, and one model of ingested behaviour that is eating, um, getting food, um, eating it, the metabolism, body fat, and so on. Then you have a homeostatic internal loop, which it relies on morphology and physiology, which relies on signals from the gastrointestinal tract, metabolism storage, the microbiome, that regulates an internal state. That is, you sit down, eat a meal, and say, I have had enough to eat. Okay? Then you have the external, the environmental cues, which is non-homeostatic. Okay? I've just done the homeostatic internal loop. I've had enough to eat. Along comes a friend and says, here is a cupcake. I know you like cupcakes. Actually, I don't like cupcakes. But if I, as, as that particular example. Then the cognitive environmental factors start to kick in. My desire for a cupcake will overwrite my homeostatic loop. And I believe that will have happened to most people in this room at some stage, if not yesterday. <laughs> the things that affect this non-homeostatic loop is availability of food, its cost. How does it taste? Feed forward cephalic reflexes. That is the McDonald's thing, that if I like McDonald's, I see the McDonald's sign, I have feed forward cephalic response to a reflex to that food, that I'm already imagining the food, and it's already engaging in a non-homeostatic loop, even while I might say I'm hungry, so I want to eat. That McDonald's I may prioritize because um, it, is, uh, it is giving me a, a feed-forward mechanism. Social context and habits, condition cues and rewards, the non-homeostatic loop. So body fatness can be maintained in a kind of normative zone according to the homeostatic loop. The non-homeostatic loop is the thing that disrupts that, creates uh, the other kinds of pressures that, uh, um, that, that, that may lead to, to, to overfeeding. So environmental cues. Taking you back to my field work in Papua New Guinea, when I was not in, in, interested in obesity whatsoever at that time. Um, okay, here's some, some people hunting a, a tree kangaroo hunting and foraging. They planted some tubers. This was up at a mine site, the Octavi uh, mine site. The major disruptor was the aeroplane. There were no roads initially. Um, then they put in, put in roads. This is the way that modernism operated in this context. People um, diet changed very quickly in relation to external cues. The first external cue in this context is salt. Salt can make food palatable and it doesn't cost very much. So you put salt on food, it, you know, the first thing that people engage in is increasing the taste of a food through, through consuming of salt. Um, Barry Popkin has formalized this nutrition, idea, nutrition transition idea from hunting and gathering to traditional agriculture, food processing and storage, to modern agriculture, food processing, storage and distribution. It never follows a straight line in any particular place, never follows Follows a, uh, is never quite so linear, but it's accepted as a, as a, as a formalization. That we kind of have hunter-gatherer bodies, taste for fatness, taste for sweetness, umami, palatability. Um, we might move to other forms of, of, of production. Modern agriculture, food processing, storage and distribution exposes us big time to um, high-fat, high-sugar foods that are then predisposed to positive energy balance and probably excess body fatness. So obesogenic environments is the kind of thing that we have to deal with now. That's a, a description of the kind of world that people live 
in most Western countries, um, not everywhere, not universally, um, coined by Boyd Swinburne in 1999, um, that it's a characterization that, that shows that the types of food that we're exposed to, high-fat, palatable fast foods, the food industry produces them, decline in physical activity, work cars, work leisure, computers everywhere, um, and interactions between all of these things, interactions between modern lives, little time, and the media. That's probably the most important one now, because these things are changing. Eventually, the industry is responding to a desire to have less energy-dense foods, that people are getting on their bicycles again. I've just come from, from Central Europe, and I've had some great bike rides with amazing cycle tracks, even cycle tracks as good as in Copenhagen in some cities, I have to say. Apologies for our, uh, to our Copenhagen, uh, our, our Danish colleagues, but there are good cycle tracks outside of Denmark. So it doesn't happen by accident. So the nutrition transition is really happening through, again, apologies to Danish colleagues, this is Mirskline, um, biggest shipping company on the planet, um, who are moving goods everywhere. Um, these goods can only happen through uh, expert systems locking everything together um, in a production system and a distribution system and a, and a consumption system. So we have many levels of complexity relating um, the ability to uh, deliver food wherever you want, at the time you want, um, when you want it. So expert systems, there are many, many of them. The expert food system, the global food system, is an expert system which is, as you can see, complex. That's the only word you need for this diagram. It's complex. There are so many different pieces to this. It makes the food system something that governments cannot regulate. They can regulate around the peripheries, but they cannot centrally regulate it because um, you change one thing in the system, something else will push back somewhere else. It's a complex system, and so you cannot individually regulate a, a food system with the best rule of the world. You can change aspects of it, um, like the sugar tax, for example, is a very effective way of, of reducing some of the more harmful aspects of the food system, which then also, also shifts and, 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 uh, and self-regulates. But there's also the issue that this complex ecology is controlled by corporations whose interests have been expressed um, at least in part by palatability nor norms. And these palatability norms have been subject to an arms race where they increase the palatability of something so they get more market share. This is out of date because corporations like Nestle, Coca-Cola and so on, they sell off the things that are less healthy and they buy the smaller, smaller uh, companies that are more healthy. So there's a, there's a race in changing the ecology of the food corporations delivery of the food system, but what we don't know is what happens to all the parts of the food system that are the least healthy, and what is the ecology of the least healthy foods now? Don't know. That's a, um, to my mind, that's a, that's a research project. <clears throat> Ultra-processed foods, as we know, have gone global. They're everywhere. Um, palatable, refined, easy to consume, durable, energy-dense, high glycemic load, low dietary fiber, micronutrients and phytochemicals, and so on. The relationship between the availability of ultra-processed foods and obesity has been shown a kind of relatively weak cross-country relationship um, across, uh, across Europe. But there is a, you know, the, the, the greater the availability of ultra-processed foods, the UK seems to be at the top there, um, the higher the, the, the prevalence of obesity. Of course, we know that's extraordinarily crude. 
um, the rising tide of, of obesity um, has sort of emerged with the uh, partying with palatability that's been happening. So this is the global pattern of, of, of rising um, uh, uh, prevalence of obesity. Um, this line in the middle represents the world, men and women, and we have high-income countries, low-income countries. There's nowhere as a region that seems to be, seems to be uh, uh, immune from it. <clears throat> How does it work? When you think about this expert systems and globalization, emergence of uh, obesogenic environments, well, um, globalization does a number of different things, but let's focus on just a, a small number of big ones. First of all, yes, it's associated with economic growth. It has led to populations being taken out of poverty. This is one of the success. Hans Rossing, for example, has talked about the uh, pulling out of poverty in, in recent decades. Um, and economic growth is not a bad thing. So how you do that economic growth is important. That's hugely important, especially now in the age of, 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 of rapid climate change that we think we can understand now. So it leads to changes in the built environment and food availability, movement from physical to sedentary labor. Even physical jobs are sedentary now as, as uh, machines take over everywhere. There's global trade liberalization, which results in reduction of physical activity, increased consumption of energy-dense foods and animal products, refined grains, etc., etc., and urbanization, which leads to changes in behavior, social cultural norms such as sleep, stress, influences, and these have influences on food choice and norms for body shape. Ultimately, they come together as a perfect storm towards positive energy balance and the rise of obesity. <coughs> stress is part of this, um, this globalisation process. And stress is increasing everywhere. I imagine most people in this room have a, would, would see stress as being a good friend of theirs, or, or, or sad enemy, one or the other. Um, it can be both, that's the problem. It can be both. How does it affect um, eating? Um, acute stress is, okay, my girlfriend dumped me, actually I've been married for 30 years, uh, so I, I've not been dumped recently, but I, I hear it can be a bad thing. Um, <clears throat> leads to an acute stress, which can reduce, lead to a decline in food intake through sympathetic adrenal medullary system. Chronic stresses, on the other hand, the kinds of stresses that most people in this room are under, production stresses, being the best scientist you can possibly be on this planet, kinds of stresses, are chronic and affect the pituitary adrenal cortical system, increase cortisol levels, lead to increased predisposition to eat more food, increase weight, and increase obesity. Thank God for bicycles. I know God didn't invent bicycles, but thank God for the inventor of bicycles, uh, because they're another way of being able to reduce those chronic stresses, among other ways. So insecurity feeding, how does this happen, these stress-related feedings? <coughs> So uncertainty, seasonality, hibernation, subordination stress, binge eating, stress relief, all of these things are, um, have evolutionary explanations. Just very, very briefly, I'll run for two more minutes. Um, here's a bird, here's a finch. Uh, uncertainty feeding, they eat more at this time of year. They are already ready, sensing the change in the season. They're already eating up to, 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 to respond to the change in season. So this is... Uh, stress-related feeding, which then uh, anticipates the onset of winter and a decline in food. Very important. Stress-related feeding, I should say, is very, very important 
for most species that, that uh, have this, you know, a, a brain-related uh, feeding system um, because it allows survival through, through extreme seasons. I love, the uh, I love the bear. Here's a bear um, that eats a lot and then sleeps through winter. So avoiding the stresses of winter by eating too much and then anticipating the worst of it by sleeping through it. Subordination stress is something that I believe most people in this room would have experienced at some stage because it affects intelligent people especially so. Um, <clears throat> Michael Marmot's group has done a lot of work on subordination stress in the Whitehall study in the UK. And this is, um, you know, that your ranking influences how... Uh, how you will be in a society. Cortisol levels are elevated because you don't know what your boss is going to say. You don't know, you know how you're going to be treated, whether sympathetically or badly. And so uh, subordination feeding is something that stress, subordination stress feeding is something that is also commonly practiced. Through things like binge eating, disinhibition. Binge eating and disinhibition evolve mechanisms. Overeating, eating as much as you like, especially in relation to the most fundamental of securities of food, especially in seasonal, unpredictable environments. If you don't know where your next meal is going to come from, this is where it has to come from, binge eating. But now, we don't have that um, in relation to uncertainty and food availability because the food is there. But it happens in everyday life because we can very easily overeat to, to reduce our, our responses to stress. I'm going to flip that and go on to conclusions. The first is that linking <coughs> ultimate and proximate causes through types of environment, through Nico Tinbergen, <coughs> all the questions are ultimately linked. Ancestral environment and phylogeny affects genetics. Genetics affects development, proximate mechanism, endocrine and so on affect behavior, which loops back onto evolution. The developmental environment affects ontogeny, but we can also say it's cross-generational developmental environment through epigenetics, we can add to that. The immediate environment also feeds. So we're working through um, a set of processes that are all uh, interlinked. Um, obesity as a behavioral, uh, as a, um, in the behavioral and physical, as a part of behavioral and physical development, feeding behavior, the explanation I've given you doesn't exclude other developmental explanations fetal development, the predictive adaptive response, epigenetics, infant feeding, physical activity, metabolic adaptations, all of these have a developmental, have a behavioral component. I'm taking you, take you on a walk through this. It's not the only walk you can take through this forest. It is the walk I've taken this morning. It's not the only walk. Um, but I hope I've been able to argue that proximate cause of body fatness, investigated from a biological perspective, what is it for, how does it develop, rather than a medical perspective, how can it be fixed? It's actually very useful because it takes us away from oversimplifying uh, what happens to be many forms of co complexity that are, that are interrelated. So in sum, I hope I've been able to convince you against structure, fatness and obesity, according to Tim Bergen's four questions. Um, evolutionary underpinning to reproduction, development and feeding, and that developmental processes are key to understanding body, body fatness in this new age of food abundance from local biologies to, to global systems. Thank you.